Welcome to the Bibliography Podcast, the place for cutting-edge discussions and conversations about ancient inscriptions and their use in interpreting the Bible. Your host, Clint Burnett, is a New Testament scholar, author, and historian who holds a PhD in Biblical Studies from Boston College and currently serves as a lecturer in New Testament at Johnson University. Before I begin this podcast, I must thank several scholars who aided me in the research stages of this presentation. First, I'm indebted to two archaeologists who are part of the Corinth Excavations, Guy Sanders, Director of Corinth Excavations, and Yulia Tizonu, Associate Director of Corinth Excavations. Both Guy and Yulia patiently answered my questions about the inscription we'll discuss via email, and they kindly provided me with links to the digitized notebooks of Corinth excavations during the years in which the epigraph we're going to talk about was uncovered. Second, I'm indebted to Stephen J. Friesen, Luis Farmer Boyer Chair in Biblical Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Steve generously answered my questions via email and discussed with me his own work on the inscription we're going to talk about. Guy Yulia and Steve, thank you so much for your time and for answering my questions. Now, on to the podcast. One of the inscriptions from Corinth that New Testament scholars frequently discuss is the so-called Erastus inscription. The reason that this epigraph is so important for these historians is that it either provides tangible proof of a first century CE Christian associated with the Apostle Paul or evidence that some first century CE Christians were among the elite of society. This inscription is an incomplete Latin epigraph consisting of three known white porcelainite fragments. These extant fragments contain six words that span two lines and say, quote, Erastus, for the benefit of his idolship, paved this at his own expense, end quote. That's my translation. The reason that some New Testament scholars connect this epigraph to a first century CE Christian associated with Paul is its supposed date, the mid-first century CE. Around this same time, Paul the Apostle wrote the letter to the Romans, most probably from Corinth, and in Romans 16:23 he says, quote, "Erastus, the city manager, sends you greetings." End quote. Given the supposed correlation of time and place, many historians of 1st century CE Christianity conclude that these two Erasti are one and the same. Hence Joseph A. Fitzmaier notes in his magisterial commentary on Romans Quote, the city treasurer or chamberlain of Romans 16.23 is undoubtedly the same as the idol Erastus who paved a square in first century Roman Corinth according to a Latin inscription partly in situ in the square near the eastern paradise of the theater in Corinth. End quote. The purpose of this podcast is to probe the question, is the Erastus from the Erastus inscription, the same Erastus whom Paul mentions in Romans 16.23. In short, does this epigraph provide hard, 
tangible evidence of a first century CE Christian from Corinth associated with Paul. In the process of answering this question, I will discuss the discovery, publication, and archaeological context of the Erastus inscription, all of which provide valuable insight into our inquiry. The Erastus inscription consists of three white porcelainite fragments known as blocks A, blocks B, and you guessed it, block C. These three fragments were discovered in Corinth between the years 1928 and 1947. It's clear that these pieces are not the sum total of the epigraph because portions of it are lost or, if you're an optimist, just yet to be discovered. The first fragment of the inscription, block B, was discovered in 1928. At that time, a team of excavators headed by F.J. Devale, so remember that name, F.J. Devale, were digging in a courtyard east of the stage building connected to the Corinthian Theater. The area in which they were excavating was an occupation level dated to the Byzantine period, so we're talking post-337 CE. As they were digging in what they considered to be a Byzantine-era house, the excavators removed a large stone on the surface of what may have been a floor. When they did, they found block B, which contains three Latin letters, L-I-T. Due to the fragmentary nature of block B and that it just said L-I-T, the excavators did not know what they had. It was not until the next year, in 1929, about 50 meters near to where Block B was found, according to Stephen J. Friesen, that archaeologists found Block A. Block A was uncovered when excavators removed a wall that dated to the Byzantine period. Under that wall, they found Block A, which had been placed into pavement east of the stage building connected to the Corinthian Theater. Block A contains the bulk of the inscription, and given that the material block A and the size of the letters of the epigraph matched block B, excavators rightly put the two fragments together. About 20 years later, in 1947, archaeologists found block C in a building southwest of the theater. They identified block C as belonging to the Erastus inscription because of its material and the size of the letters, both of which match perfectly blocks A and B. This means that the current known size of the Erastus inscription is 0.66 meters high, 3.8 meters wide, and 0.15 meters thick. Now, for those who are metrically impaired like me, this would be 2 feet high, 12 and a half feet wide, and 6 inches thick. Now, the letters of the Erastus inscription are 0.18 meters high, or 6 inches. Despite the size of this inscription, some of it is missing. It's clear that the beginning of the epigraph is lost, for the vertical stroke of the E is gone. Now, you can go to the Bibliopigraphy website and see a picture of what I'm talking about. So that vertical stroke in the first E of the inscription that's extant is gone. Provided that the second line of the inscription was centered under the first, which seems most probable, 
there could be up to seven letters missing from the beginning of the inscription, from the beginning of that first line. Now, these missing letters probably provided the rest of Erastus' Roman name. In first century CE, Roman citizens typically had three names. There was a prinomen, a nomen gentilicum, and a cognomen. This means that Erastus's prinomen and nomen gentilicum are unknown. We only know his cognomen. After the discovery of the largest fragment of the inscription, Block A, in 1929, Devale published the inscription, some comments about it, and the circumstances around the discovery of the inscription in a Dutch journal. Despite the fact that Devale mistranslated the Latin word pro, which means for the benefit of in his own translation, he surmises that the Erastus mentioned in the inscription paved an area of the city as a quid pro quo for being elected aedile, which an aedile is a local political office in Corinth and one to which men of high social standing and only men of high social standing and wealth were elected. In this initial publication, Devale raises the question I am pursuing in this podcast. Is the Erastus from this inscription the same as Paul's? Because he and his team found a coin dating to Hadrian's reign, this would be the emperor Hadrian who reigned from 117 to 138 CE, because they found a coin underneath the pavement where block A had been placed, Devale argues that the pavement must date after that time. He goes on to note that the inscription is not in its original location, for the beginning of the epigraph is missing. Given that the inscription has been moved, Devale proposes that Erastus, who's mentioned in the inscription, had probably been dead for some time. If the pavement dates to the mid-2nd century CE, as the coin suggests to him, then Devale estimates that Erastus probably lived in the second half of the 1st century CE. Henceforth, he identifies the Erastus in the inscription as Paul's Erastus, concluding that Paul's Erastus was a local Corinthian elite. While a few scholars, most notably Henry Cadbury, argued against this certain identification of these two Erasti, many scholars accepted it. One of the most important historians to do so is one of the epigraphers from the Corinth excavations, John Harvey Kent. He published the Erastus inscription in Corinth, Volume 8, Part 3, the inscriptions from 1926 to 1950. He published this in 1966. That date is important for later. In his discussion of the inscription, Kent lays out three arguments that he says make the identification of these two Arasti sound. I'm going to go into detail into these reasons because scholars have been articulating them ever since Kent first proposed them. The first argument is based on supposed archaeological evidence. Kent dates the laying of the pavement in which the inscription was found to the mid-first century CE. In the process, he identifies the pavement as that which Erastus laid because of his election to the idolship. The second argument is based on prosopography. Now, prosopography is basically 
the science of tracing an ancient person's political, military, and religious career through ancient inscriptions and literary sources. So basically, their ancient CV. Kent notes, quote, apart from this inscription, the name Erastus is not found at Corinth and is not a common cognomen, end quote, by which he means a common cognomen of Roman citizens in the Roman Empire. Consequently, for him, it's more probable than not that these two Erasti are the same. They share the same name. The third and final argument that Kent marshals is literary corroboration. He points out that the word that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans 16.23 to describe Erastus, the Greek term oikonomos, which is typically translated city manager, quote, describes with reasonable accuracy the function of a Corinthian idol. End quote. Most New Testament scholars have accepted Kent's identification of the Erastus of the Erastus inscription as Paul's, and in the process, rearticulated all or two of Kent's supporting reasons for it. The problem with the certitude of this identification is that each of Kent's supporting pieces of evidence do not stand up to close scrutiny. First, he incorrectly says that block A of the Erastus inscription, this would be the fragment that contains almost all the epigraph, was found in situ in the pavement. The import of this observation is that Kent believes that the pavement in which block A was found is the actual pavement that Erastus from the inscription laid. However, this conclusion and assumption are incorrect it is clear that block A is not in situ. The Latin phrase in situ literally means, quote, in its original place or location, end quote. You do not have to be an epigrapher, this is a specialist who studies inscriptions, to see this. If you look at the picture of block A on the Bibliopigraphy website, so this would be the fragment of the inscription that contains the majority of the inscription, you will see that the vertical stroke of the E is missing from block A. Kent himself notes that up to seven letters are missing from the beginning of this epigraph. What is more, if you look at the tops of blocks A, B, and C, you will observe a huge difference among the three. The tops of blocks B and C have a rim that sticks out and sort of functions to frame the inscription. That rim, however, is missing from block A. The most probable reason is that it has been removed so that block A could be placed into the pavement in which it currently is secondarily, hence not in situ. It's been moved in antiquity. This fact is something that Diwali points out in his publication of the Erastus inscription in 1929. He says, quote, from the deviating orientation of the rows of stones, which form the boundaries and the orientation of the stones of the square, it is clear that the current pavement is the result of a restoration of the place, end quote. Diwali goes so far as to posit that we will never know the original location of the Erastus inscription. More recently, Stephen J. Friesen makes a similar comment when he notes of block A that it, quote, has no integral connection to the plaza around it, end quote. Friesen goes on to highlight the certainty that block A has been inserted into the pavement 
because the other paving stones differ in the size and shape from block A. And once again, go to the Bibliopigraphy website, look at the inscription for yourself. Kent's dating of the pavement in which block A was found is also incorrect. To recap, he dates the pavement to the mid-first century CE. However, he provides no evidence for his dating. Devale dated the pavement in question to Hadrian's reign. He at least provided some evidence that would be a coin that dated to the Emperor Hadrian's reign that he found underneath the pavement where Block A had been placed. More recently, Friesen consulted not only the excavation notebooks from Corinth that I was able to consult, but also someone with whom I was unable to consult, Charles Williams, who was preparing the final publication of the archaeological data associated with the courtyard in which the Erastus inscription is. Friesen notes that as per Williams, the pavement covers a latrine that was used until the time of Hadrian. In the science of archaeology, there is a law known as the law of superposition, which is used for what we call relative dating. The law states that the lowest levels in a stratigraphic sequence are older than the levels above it. This means that everything in the stratigraphic sequence of the pavement must be newer than what is below it. If the the latrine was used until the time of Hadrian and the pavement of the courtyard was laid on top of said latrine, then the latrine must be older than the pavement of the courtyard. The import of this observation is that Kent's dating of the pavement and the inscription to the mid-first century CE is wrong, and it seems to be founded on circular reasoning. Paul's Erastus laid the pavement, so the pavement dates to the mid-first century CE. The pavement dates to the mid-first century CE because Paul's Erastus laid the pavement. Friesen goes so far as to date the inscription to the mid-second century CE or later. However, given Block A's reuse in that pavement, the Erastus inscription must date sometime before the mid-second century CE. Kent's third supporting piece of evidence that the title Oikonomos accurately describes the Latin political office of Idyll is not without its problems either. He based this conclusion on little to no evidence. Like his reasoning for dating the pavement to the mid-first century CE, his reasoning for concluding that Oikonomos describes the function of a Idyll in Corinth is also circular, because Paul's Erastus and the one from the inscription are identical, then the two terms, idyll and oikonomos, must be identical as well. The difficulty with Kent's conclusion is that the commonest Greek term that ancient Greek speakers use to translate idyll is not oikonomos, it's agoronomos. And the commonest Latin term that ancient Latin speakers use to translate the Greek oikonomos is archarius not idyll. Now, acarius is how the Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Greek New Testament, renders Romans 16.23. It calls Erastus an acarius kiwitatis. The difficulty in equating idyll with oikonomos is why some New Testament scholars, who do accept that the two Erasti are the same, propose that oikonomos is actually translating another Latin office, that of quaster.
To make sense of the evidence, these historians propose that when Paul wrote Romans in the late 50s CE, Erastus was a quaster. Later, however, by the time he lays the pavement in which block A was found, he is an idile. The problem with this proposal is twofold. First, it assumes that the pavement in which block A was found is the block's original position, and as we have seen, that is incorrect. Second, there is little to no evidence for quaestors in Roman Corinth. It is certainly the case that Corinth was a colony of Rome, that quaestors are known in other Roman colonies, and that quaestors appear in four inscriptions from Corinth. These are political offices, basically. However, Roman colonies were diverse, and not every colony had quaestors. In fact, as Alexander Weiss points out, Corinth appears not to have had them. The only known political offices in Corinth are that of Idile, which Erastus was, and Duumvir. And when one scrutinizes the supposed appearances of quaestors in Corinthian inscriptions, the most probable reason why we find them is that these people did not serve as quaestors in Corinth, but as quaestors elsewhere. In the end, it is unclear what political office Paul has in mind when he calls Erastus an oikonomos. Erastus may have been an archarius, which was a political office that ex-slaves held, and once again how the Vulgate renders oikonomos. The final problem with Kent's supporting evidence is his prosopographical claim that no other Erasti are attested in Corinth. This observation is incorrect. Remember, he made this observation in 1966. In 1960, six years before he published his volume containing the Erastus inscription, a Greek inscription dated to the mid-2nd century CE was found in a cemetery in Corinth and it probably has the name Erastus engraved on it. The epigraph in question is on marble and is a dedication to a pagan deity that may have been part of an ancient sundial. The text reads, quote, The Vitellii, Frontinus, and Erastus dedicated this to, and the inscription breaks off, end quote. The reason that is not 100% clear that the epigraph refers to Erastus, is that the epsilon, so the E of the name Erastus in this epigraph, is partially missing. However, Erastus seems to be the most plausible reading, and you can go to the Bibliopigraphy website to see this inscription. Provided that this inscription does refer to Erastus, then the Erastus mentioned is probably the brother of the other person mentioned, Frontenus. These two are probably ex-slaves, or freed persons, persons that have been emancipated by the Vitellius family. It is unclear if this Erastus is the same one who served as an idile and who laid what we call the Erastus inscription. Most scholars have not considered this a possibility because they date the Erastus inscription to the mid-first century CE. There is some truth to the claim that Erastus was a rare cognomen, the claim that Kent makes. Recently, Timothy Brookins published a comprehensive survey of the name Erastus from Greek antiquity until the 5th century CE, in which he provides quantitative evidence that the cognomen Erastus was rare. 
Brookin's excellent work demonstrates that besides the Erastus inscription, which he dates to the first century CE, there are only four other first century CE Erasti in Greek. From the rarity of this cognomen, he argues then that Paul's Erastus and the one from the inscription are probably the same. To quote his words, quote, men named Erastus in first century Greece were apparently and seriously short supply, end quote. Brookins's prosopographical argument is compelling. However, on balance, it is not enough to bear the load to support the identification of Paul's Erastus with the one from the inscription, especially given the second century CE dating of the pavement. What most Testament scholars fail to note in their discussions of the Erastus inscription and their conclusion that Paul's Erastus is the same as the one from the epigraph from Corinth is that the Vale, who first articulated the thesis that the two Erasti were the same, retracted that identification. In 1931, Henry Cadbury published a careful analysis of the Erastus inscription in which he casts doubt on the identification of the two Erasti. In the article, he says that the Vale told him in a personal communication that he now believes Paul's Erastus cannot be the one from the Corinthian inscription. De Valle made this retraction public in 1934 in a published book review in which he notes, quote, I must emphasize all the more the incorrectness of the explanation of the Erastus inscription. The Erastus mentioned here must not be identified with the treasurer mentioned in Romans 16.23, end quote. De Valle provides no reason for his withdrawal, but the fact that the first person to argue for the identification of the two Erasti, the person who discovered the inscription, withdrew that identification, must give every historian and New Testament scholar reason to stop and ponder why. To return to the question that opened this podcast, is Paul's Erastus the same as the one in the Erastus inscription? That is, do we have hard, tangible proof of a first century CE Corinthian Christian connected to the Apostle Paul? The answer is, we do not have enough evidence to support the identification of the two Erasti. The only argument that lends any credence to the identification of the two is the prosopographical one. However, that is not enough to establish with any degree of certainty that the Erastus from the Erastus inscription is the same one that Paul mentions in Romans 16.23. This means that for now, tangible proof of a first century CE Christian from Corinth remains elusive. I'm Clint Burnett. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, then please subscribe to the Bibliopigraphy podcast, rate us on iTunes, and consider supporting this podcast financially. All that information can be found on the Bibliopigraphy website. You've been listening to the Bibliopigraphy podcast with Clint Burnett. For more information on the podcast, visit our website, bibliopigraphy.com, and follow us on Twitter, at Bibliopigraphy. For show notes, images, and links, visit bibliopigraphy.com slash inscriptions. If you enjoyed this podcast, then rank us on iTunes and donate at bibliopigraphy.com slash donate to help this podcast continue.